I'm very excited to share this recording with you guys, which happened at our conference, sasopen.com, with over 100 speakers, all founders of B2B SaaS companies. We have a very high bar for what speakers share on stage, so you're going to enjoy this episode where we dive deep into revenue graphs, real tactics, and real growth metrics. You are listening to Conversations with Nathan Latka, where I sit down and interview the top SaaS founders, like Eric Wan from Zoom. If you'd like to subscribe, go to gitlatka.com. We've published thousands of these interviews, and if you want to sort through them quickly by revenue or churn, CAC, valuation, or other metrics, the easiest way to do that is to go to gitlatka.com and use our filtering tool. It's like a big Excel sheet for all of these podcast interviews. Check it out right now at gitlatka.com. No chairs. No chairs. No, no fireside chat. Yeah. But great intro. We're going to have to do it, Alex, just intro. standing up. Standing fireside chat. It's going to be a stand-up fireside sit-down chat. As ever, thanks, everybody, for Friday afternoon sticking with us here. Um, excited to be on stage. We with have Bridget Harris Bridget from You Harris. Can Me. Yeah, fastest. No, uh, today, uh, we've got to give uh, Bridget a round of applause here. Uh, she made it to number 30 in the E2E, uh, female 100, fastest growing uh, I, I guess entrepreneurs, businesses, female entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs in, in the, the UK. UK. So well done to well done Thank to you. Bridget. Just giving her a bit of uh, credibility, due credibility, uh, as to the the subject here. Five lessons in bootstrapping to five million ARR. So ha- do we have many bootstrappers here? I think there's a lot of bootstrappers at this conference. Woohoo! I'm gonna say probably about a third of you. So we're two bootstrappers, so we can talk about that. Uh, I'm at five million, but not in ARR, in dollars. You're at five million ARR, dollars or pounds? Uh, dollars, but dollars? Uh, we're kind of heading towards the pounds, depending yeah. on the dollar sterling parity. You know, it kind of changes, but yeah. yeah. Much. And I've been running SaaStock, which uh, helps SaaS companies get to 10 million in revenue through our conferences, uh, our memberships and media. Uh, Bridget running an actual SaaS company. So I think more uh, pearls of wisdom coming from Bridget uh, uh, today in the next 20 minutes than... Uh, than myself, but uh, let, let's talk about it. Five lessons, we've got uh, 17 minutes, uh, plus we want to take some questions uh, as well. So first lesson uh, is around timing. So like who, who what, uh, when to, to buy your product? Right, well, yeah. The question about timing is intrinsically connected to whether you raise money. Because if you're going to go for a kind of product that requires a lot of upfront investment to do with compliance, or maybe it's, it's got some hardware association, you've got to do some manufacturing, or you need to do a huge amount of customer research in order to get the right thing, then your timing is going to be really affected by your choice to bootstrap. Should we take a seat? Chairs. You see? Thank you. You see ah. how effective bootstrappers are at getting what we want. <laughs> so we could can, we can do any stage, but we can also eventually, things that you need arrive. We could do what we want because we own the company. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so... This is what I would say, and like my experience of bootstrapping, and I, I want to hear what you think about your timing for, for because you were much more in the you need upfront capital, so I want to know how you did it. Mm-hmm. Um, it just so happens that with our products, we were doing online scheduling, it's a drip drip, it's a self-service, it's a freemium. So because of that, and also we started about 15 years ago, the timing for us to be able to stretch that out over a long time when you're really earning very little, now for context, to get that 5 million, we have over 20,000 customers. So we have a lot of small people, small engines, small amounts of money powering what we're doing. So um, it takes a long time to build that up. Um, so if you haven't got the time to do it, then that's really helping you uh, define whether you can bootstrap or not. 
But what about you, Alex? Yeah, I, th I think for me, uh, I mean, SaaS stock was a side hustle, obviously, before it was uh, a, a revenue-generating business. But I spent 12 months building an audience inadvertently, maybe, maybe a bit more sort of credit uh, uh, around that. But um, 12 months doing that, uh, I think six months of those 12 months, I was working full-time somewhere else, but working from home. So I had the time to work on the side project. Um, and after 12 months of not being revenue generating, uh, I had an audience that I could then sell tickets and sponsorship into. Uh, so we were then customer funded uh, after the next 12 months. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 if, you, if you can't afford a potential five-year runway to get up to speed where you're hiring people, you're paying yourself and you're feeling good about it, then that's the point to take on a financial partner who's going to give you some of that upfront cash. Um, but right now, you know, it, the, the, first, the first product that uh, myself and Keith actually launched, my co-founder and CTO, was literally in 2003, and it was a survey building tool. It's called tickboxer.com. We've sold the domain since then. Um, it was exactly like SurveyMonkey, but we just realized in order to get people to use our survey building tool, we needed a lot of upfront capital to invest in the marketing and the awareness and the brand. We couldn't do it because we didn't want to take on money, and it's as simple as that. So we, 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 we dumped the, the product. So as soon as we got You Can Book Me, well, we could see that um, natural viral growth rate, essentially, um, and we had the patience and timing to do it. Second lesson is around skills. What skills that you have as the co-founders versus what do you need to pay for and bring into, the, uh, bring into the business? So again, it's the same sort of thing when you're choosing to bootstrap versus uh, upfront funding. If you have the money, you can buy all the skills. Fantastic. If you haven't got the money, you've then got to look at your internally, what skills have you got? And my view is that you've got three core things that you need inside um, a product, a SaaS product like ours. Um, you need um, engineering, CTO, somebody who's actually going to code. You need um, operations and finance, somebody who's basically going to deliver the business strategy. And then you need some kind of creative designer, product owner, somebody who's going to sort of shape that product over time. Basically, me and Keith had the, had the first two. So he was the engineer and I was the operations person. And you see that today, 10 years later in the, in the company. It's a very engineering and operations-led company. It's taken a while for us to move across into a more product and design-led um, uh, sort of set of priorities. So you can get a lot of people, but I don't, I've never met somebody yet who's one person who's all three or two founders. You either get three co-founders with those skills or you have to buy in. Now, I would say, actually, nowadays it's probably easiest to buy in tech, ironically, engineering, because there's so many fantastic agencies that do it. As long as you've got a very good, strong product desire, you can basically hire people to, to do that for you. Um, but again, can you bootstrap without one of those key leading skills? Um, how are you going to pay for that skill? Um, and whatever you can't pay for, you're going to create debt. So essentially, you're going to create technical debt or customer debt or product debt or some, some form of cash debt. How are you going to do it? So cash debt is borrowing money from, a, from, a, from an investor to, um, or any kind of borrowing money. That's cash debt. If you decide not to take cash debt because you want to be customer funded, well, then you're going to probably take on debt by one of the other pillars. So let's talk about um, hiring then. So uh, obviously, we talk about the skills. What have you got? What do you need to buy for uh, and pay to bring into the company? So when you're hiring, um, you know, I guess kind of like what stage do you know like, uh, what sort of roles and how much you're going to pay to, to bring I mean, amazing point, and I was talking about it with Angie today. So 
is huge. Um, everybody makes mistakes. Loved what Becca was saying about hiring and how to essentially diversify and think about internationally who you can get. There's some incredible models out there now of people who've just decided to not employ anybody directly and they just go straight to the freelance market and only get freelancers. And they put a, um, you know, Gumroad is, is based, based on that model. Um, and actually, Angie, this is really what I was trying to capture in what we were talking about earlier today. The minute you start hiring and employing people, you're introducing culture into your company. So you have to decide what that culture is going to be and how that's going to grow. Um, so what you pay them and how, you, how much you can afford is, is, is absolutely embedded and baked into it. So my view is pay as much as you can, a sort of, sort of minimal acceptable um, offer for people. Don't pay them the most you can. As soon as you realize that they're going to offer you value and they're going to keep helping you build your company, keep paying them internally to keep incentivizing and supporting the people internally who work for you um, and also to stay market relevant. But you've got to do it within your bootstrapped boundaries. And don't do, and I, we have done this before, believe that if you could just afford to pay somebody 150000 a year and you sort of bring in some kind of six-figure superstar, that they will then have this trans transformative effect. I've never experienced that. I've never experienced the idea that by going out and paying you know, a huge salary, I'm going to get a 10x person to come in. All my 10x, if you like, people who work for me now, who are on good salaries, they all started joining the company at fairly modest rates and basically worked really hard inside the company to get to that point where I realized just how powerful a team we are because of it. But you, you have to do that through culture, not just, not just direct hiring. Yeah, I think, I mean, slightly the opposite for, for us. I mean, obviously we're, again, we're, we're not a SaaS company, but I feel like we, over the years, and you know, we've been running for eight years, um, as a bootstrap business, we haven't really been able to pay like, you, you know, uh, competitive, you know, super competitive uh, sort of wages. Um, and we probably not, I wouldn't say underpaid, we pay well for all the industry that we're in. I'm not applying but, for a job, by the way. Yeah, no, 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 it's okay. Um, but yeah, I, th I think only sort of like recently, uh, it, it, you know, in the eighth year, are we now, you know, paying top dollar for, mm. you know, senior leadership roles? And we are seeing, you know, personally, like a 10x difference, you know, in, uh, I guess, uh, the, these expensive uh, sort of folks. But is that, that's a disadvantage for bootstrappers generally, would you say? So you, absolutely. And I think in some ways, you just have to be kind of confident about what it is that you're offering somebody. And it's not the case that every single high-performing person wants exactly the same thing. It's relative to all these other, other um, things in their lives. So, you know, you can find people who they actively like. Um, you know, you can book me as brand, if you like, as a company. It's pretty clear. I think it'd be pretty clear to anybody who wants to come and work for us what they're going to get. They're going to get a small company because we basically, um, you know, we, we, have, um, we have kept a lot of control over the size of our company deliberately, pretty much to reduce the sort of stress on us as founders. Um, I mean, look at Becca. She's running a company with 150 people and she's, you know, she's dressing up as a unicorn. Like, there's a kind of, you know, you have to you find, find your strategies through. And, and um, I personally would find it very stressful to, to run a company with 1,000 people. So there's that. So we're small, we're remote. Another big differentiator, well, not so much now, but a big differentiator um, is to be remote. We're bootstrapped, we're profitable, we pay out profit share, we are very transparent inside the company, and we, did, we document all of that. So we do it very deliberately so that somebody, 
the aim is for somebody to look at our website and go, ah, oh, those look like my people. I want to go work for those people. Now, when you, when you get to that situation, you then really want to be able to say, what we offer is fair. It might be above market rate. You might also get some extra in terms of bonus and profit share. It's a package. And so I don't know if any of you were uh, watching me last year in Austin. Hands up, anybody was, that was the... Right, hi, of course. Hi, everybody. Um, but, that, you know, I was talking then about profit share. So you end up introducing other parts of your company that you can incentivize people to be a part of. Also, don't underestimate the power of the offer to say you have an opportunity to really change something here. You can come in, here is, here is, here is the way we've laid it out. Because we've been bootstrapped, we're not under any pressure to kind of deliver to an external um, person's criteria. We can build something that we really want. So one of our internal cultures, um, culture statements is um, commitment to excellence. So that's, that sometimes does mean we're going to rewrite something or we're going to drop it because it's not good enough. And, you know, we have, we have a quality control that matters to us. Um, we're not just move fast, break things, hack it, move on. It doesn't matter. Let the customer down. Let's go, let's go, let's go. We don't do that. Um, and there's some people where they know they've got an opportunity to make a real impact. And that is just as important as their as their salary. Lesson number four is cash is king. What does that mean in, I guess, the bootstrapping terms in your experience? Cash is king. I mean, my God, if there was anything um, that, anything, anybody that doubted that after last weekend's SVB meltdown, um, you know, they won't now. It's, it's all, and actually, as a bootstrapper, and we had money in Silicon Valley Bank, I was, I was indignant about the idea that my money that we had earned from customers, customer money basically, hard-earned customer money was in a bank account that was potentially going to be lost or taken away or gone towards some kind of loss. I was apoplectic about that. Um, so you can't run out of money if you're a bootstrapper. So we didn't raise cash, but we did borrow money. We, borrowed, we, had, we, we got banking overdrafts and credit cards, private loans. We, we did it. Um, you have to watch how much money is in your bank account. It doesn't really matter much how much profit you're making, how much you're earning. You just can't run out of money. I've never, ever not made payroll for the 12 years we've been running the company. And um, there's only one way to do that, which is financial literacy. So one of the early things that I did when I realized that we were bootstrapping for real, if you like, with people, as soon as you take on people, you're responsible for their financial security as well as your own, your company's. Um, I went on a fi financial literacy course. I basically learned about how profit and loss works, how balance sheet works, how working capital works. Um, so I run my business. It's a business. It isn't, it's not necessarily a SaaS company or anything else. It's a, you know, you're the same. I mean, your, your overheads must be absolutely enormous in terms of being an event organizer. So I can't imagine. Um, you know, our gross margins are very, very good because they're a so it's a software company, so it's, it's pretty simple to run. But you've got to, be, you've got to be confident about what you're talking about. Uh, one of the you, you mentioned actually sort of earlier uh, that a book that you read whilst you were bootstrapping that's helped you was Venture Deals. That's right. So why, why was that? So again, I would say to any founder who's thinking about being, a, you know, bootstrapping sounds, sounds hard, maybe, maybe great long term, but it sounds hard, maybe, maybe venture capital or taking on investment is easier. I would just say that's fine, that's completely legitimate, but you've got to be educated around the table. If you're going to take money from a VC, and I read about 10 years ago, Venture Deals, whenever it came out, Read that book because um, it will tell you exactly how deals are structured, what the incentive of the VC is, and what business that they are in. And it's a really great business. Um, it's a legitimate business, but it's not necessarily got anything to do with what you've decided to sell as a product. 
So um, you just have to educate yourself about what venture capital and corporate finance is about. And they're not your friends. You know, what they're doing is they're making money from your decision to go into business as an entrepreneur and make money. And that's a different thing. And you, it, my, view would, oh, sorry, my view would be, you know, exploit them if you need them. If you need them for upfront capital, if you need them for upfront investment, exploit them because that's what they're there for. But don't think that they're doing you a favor. And the only way you're going to learn that is by reading the books. And that's a great book. Um, we've got two minutes. The final lesson was around boundaries, so separating your personal boundaries from your business boundaries. So yes. Can you, you share a bit more around that? Well, that again is an, a reflection of what happens if you're bootstrapped. You don't have this external pressure, which is obviously a good one, because if you've got, if you've just taken on 10 million quid from somebody, they're obviously going to be hovering around making sure you're not going to spend that on sweets. So you've got this accountability for your business that puts you into a different role. Whereas if you're bootstrapped, you can say, well, I don't know if it's my expense card or if it's the company expense card. Does it really matter? It's my money. Um, you, can, uh, you end up falling into patterns potentially around 24-hour you know, obsession with your business. And I just think it's going to take you longer to bootstrap a company. Um, so you're, you're, you're signing up for 10, 15, 20 years of your life. If you don't put in boundaries soon enough, um, you, it, you know, it could, you'll burn out like anybody else. There's nothing special about bootstrapping. So my experience is I've always bootstrapped however, whatever pennies we had, whatever peanuts we had in our bank account for You Can Book Me. It was always separate, financially separate to my personal expenses. And that way it just gave me some mental clarity about what I was doing. Awesome. Any questions from the audience in the time that we have left? Anything for Bridget? Yeah. See there? On the right first. Yeah. Uh, we use uh, You Can Book Me, great product. Woo! Yeah! <laughs> I'm impressed as well. We're a similarly sort of, you know, largely bootstrapped, not entirely bootstrapped SaaS, and sometimes the growth is slower than you would like. Yeah. And then you see other competitors in your field who are well-funded and growing very quickly. I'm just curious, do you ever feel pressure from like the Calendly's of the world or whomever else? Um, well, obviously, sometimes, you know, you get, you, you, when you're a business owner, you, you're, you never lose that kind of fear that something is all just going to go wrong and, and you know, you've, you've got to take care of it. At the same time, you have to be philosophical. Like, apart from anything else, the perspective. We were in business before Calendly. We, we've been in scheduling for a very long time. And we, our goals are different because we're bootstrapped. So I don't need to be a 200 million pound company in order for actually everybody who works for us and our customers to be super happy. So, you know, I'm glad to see, obviously, Dingus and Zazie are in the room as well. Your money that's in our bank account that was in SVB that we're protecting here. Like my relationship is to you guys. It isn't to anybody else. If Calendly comes and, um, or any other scheduling tool, Chili Piper were here, like those guys there, they're absolutely fantastic. You know, we're all in the same business to try to serve customers. And our primary relationship is with the customers who currently buy us, and then our marketing and growth opportunities to try to persuade others. And you just have to be self-assured, I think. You, I don't, you can't go into business and be an entrepreneur and be worried that your idea is, is not good enough or somebody's going to take take it away from you. You have to basically be a bit of a, you know, like basically be a bit cocky. You're just like, well, I think we could probably do anything if we wanted to. You know, you just have to go in there and say, yeah, they're great and they've been well-funded and they're doing whatever they want to do. Why is that, why has that got anything to do with my ability to ship tomorrow and do the customer feature that somebody wants and to basically run a successful business and, and have lots of money in the bank and, and keep everybody happy? Like they don't, they don't have to affect me. And I think you, that, that's another way of grounding um, 
you know, being sort of strong boundaries. I would say that resistance to pressure from competitors is a strong boundary. That doesn't mean to say you don't pay attention, but you do need a boundary. I think maybe one more. Yeah. A quick one. Um, what, what was the name of the book that you mentioned everyone should go to the table, the VC table understanding? Oh, Venture Deals. Who's the guy that wrote it? Bradfeld. Bradfeld, Venture Deals. I mean, it just, it kind of lifts the lid on it. it and it's actually, I had a lovely chat with a guy, I don't know if he's here, Jim, who's a venture, he's a growth equity guy. He was, he's, a, he's a guy, you know, turning up to these events specifically to try to attract companies to invest in. He said, listen, VCs try to give you too much money because they're basically trying to run down the fund. They're trying to write big checks. If they tell you they're going to give you a million, they're going to try to make you take five million because they're just basically, you know, their, their objectives are different to yours. He said, bootstrap for longer. Don't take as much money. Work out what you're trying to do first. You know, work, work out how you're going to make money from customers before you take money from VCs. Because often in this world, people announce funding rounds as if they've just made some money. It's like, no, you haven't. You've just either sold a bit of your company or your customers become your VC, or you've now just, you know, entered into some enormous debt structure and finance structure where if, if, if you are under pressure, you might have to pay that VC back three times whatever they've given you before anybody else gets a penny. And I think you just have to be literate about that because it is, it is a, a perfectly legitimate form of finance. Obviously, Founder Path are here as well and all these other guys that are doing some incredible work to give... I mean, if I'd had... Honestly, if I'd had Founder Path... I'm not just saying this because it's Nathan's show, but if I had found a path 10 years ago, I was scraping around for 25,000 quid from NatWest, you know, like on the high street of Bedford. And they were like, oh, I'm not quite sure. I'm like, I'm growing at 2,000%. You know, like, but mm, I just don't understand. You're making a loss. I know, but you need to give me money. And it was just such a headache. But I, I can believe that if found a path had been around 10 years ago, I'd have just, you know, I would absolutely have floated in, got a million, off we go. But, you know, but, I want, but I'm mean, I'm not going to give away my company you know, um, to people who sort of feel like are in the, when they circle around in that first year and they, and, they, and they give you those sort of preference shares and all the liquidation preferences and all the rest of it. And you read, you read up on it in venture deals and you suddenly realize the game they're playing. Good luck to them. Well done. But don't forget, it's not your business. It's their business model. It's not your business model. So I'm actually quite evangelical about this, I realize. <laughs> I wasn't going to slag them all off, but like, you know, you know what I'm saying. Cool. All right. I think we're done. Let's hear it for Bridget. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. Okay.